The last few weeks we've been talking about, pri <coughs> about priorities. What is most important in life? What is most important in your life? What is your top priority? We've talked about the fact that we've only got one life. And Jesus has a lot to say to us about what we do with it. So uh, today we've got two things we're going to do to remind us of this, this and remind us of what Jesus uh, had to say to us to get our hearts open and ready to receive his word. Today, uh, Matt Blackwell is going to be bringing God's word to us. Last night, after he got through preaching, a lady turned around to me and said, who was that? He was really good. Matt Blackwell is uh, a part-time member of our pastoral staff. He, he um, has uh, completed all of the coursework to be a pastor. He is, um, he is uh, helping, especially in the area of visiting those who cannot get out anymore and encouraging them. And uh, so we're very appreciative of the work that he does here in the name of Jesus. So... What are the two things we're going to do? We're going to watch something that reminds us life is very limited. And then I'm I would like for you to join with the worship team in singing together the first verse, you know the words, the first verse, verse of Amazing Grace. I heard an illustration the other day where someone used a marble to represent every weekend they have with their kids from the time they're born till the time they leave their house. It came out to about a thousand marbles. A thousand marbles. It kind of sounds like a lot, but before you know it, those weekends start slipping away. For me, the hardest thing the thing that really broke my heart was realizing how many handfuls I've already thrown away. So much time wasted. What do I have to show for it? Life is precious. And even though I've squandered a lot of my time, now I cherish each one of these marbles. I guess you can say that seeing how much time I waste has changed my perspective on what's important. Careers and hobbies are good things, but they certainly aren't the ultimate things I had made them for. I guess this life is all about perspective. And even though I know I can't spend every weekend with my family, I can certainly try. I can't believe before that I was so dedicated to the things that don't really matter. Me? I've got 728 marbles left. And I can't wait to enjoy each one.
if you want to stand and sing Amazing Grace with us, just the chorus. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now I can't hold my Bible as a prop. All right, how's that? Better? Yeah, people keep telling me I need to talk louder, so. I want to, um, I want to begin... Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, if you would turn with me there. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Um, read, what from, read from whatever version you like. It won't compromise the integrity of the message at all. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the fields, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy upon us today. We thank you for this time. And we thank you for your word. May you bring us truth this morning. Amen. In 1979, the Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky released a movie titled The Stalker. Now, to be clear, The Stalker is a bad English translation. A more appropriate title would have been The Guide. And the premise of the movie is very simple. It takes place in a post-apocalyptic world. And everyone on the planet is looking for this place called, when you enter into the room, you are given the deepest desire of your heart. Whatever you've been longing for the most. The entirety of the movie, the stalker, or rather the guide, is leading two companions, the professor and the writer, to the center of the zone. And after a very long journey, the stalker leads both men to the threshold of the room. To the viewer, all you see are the three men staring into a doorway that is obscured by a radiating white light and the pleasant sound of birds chirping beyond it. And after a brief moment of awe, the stalker breaks the silence with one question, who wants to go first? Both men look to the light and look at each other. They get cold feet. Neither of them, after such a long journey, after pining for what they've longed for the most, wish to take the next step. The reality of the room finally hits them. What if I don't want what I think I want? What if the way I've looked at things this whole time is wrong and I've somehow missed what I really should be seeking and the stalker responds to them that is now for the room to decide in this scene depicted I believe the writer and the professor are both faced with a conflict of vision They've lived their lives under a certain set of assumptions and understandings which have caused them to believe that if they can just acquire this thing, then they will find happiness, find fulfillment, find security on earth. If I can just get that, I'll be okay. 
And yet at the moment that this desire is finally going to be met for them, it dawns on them, what if my vision has actually blinded me from what I'm really looking for? The issue of vision is something that I believe plagues the evangelical church in America today. It's a quintessential aspect of the gospel narrative, and sadly, I think one of the main reasons we're losing young people at an alarming rate. In fact, the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, what we read from this morning, as well as Jesus' ministry, is focused on seeing the world differently. Take, for instance, the last line we just sang together was blind, but now I see. What if that's not metaphorical? What if we are truly blind apart from Christ and it is only through him that we begin to see? For a moment, actually consider for yourselves that the state of your own life and furthermore the state of the church whether it's good or bad, is not because of some cultural anomaly or mystical force of evil in the world, but rather a direct result of your own vision. What if how we are living as believers and as a community of faith is actually designed to produce the very outcome you experience? That's the question that I want us to bring to Matthew 6 this morning. I'm fascinated by this passage because I believe it gives us two very clear and opposing views of the world. In fact, this kind of dichotomy it presents is heavily represented in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's depiction of Jesus shows us a radically different vision of the world it's a vision where the first will be last, where lions lay down with lambs, where our enemies are to be loved instead of despised, where it is better to serve than to be served, where adults must become like little children, where we must even lose our own life in order to find it. To truly live into this vision Matthew portrays, it seems we have to turn the world's vision on its head. Let's begin reading at verse 19 where we began from. <clears throat> Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pause here for a moment. On June 8th, 793, the monastery at Lindisfarne, England, was attacked by the very first Viking raid in history. This was considered the beginning of the Viking Age, which wouldn't come to an end for more than 200 years. One of the only survivors, Bishop Higbald, sent a distress letter to his dear friend, Bishop Alquin of York, who wrote back this response, quote, 
Pagans have desecrated God's sanctuary, shed the blood of saints around the altar, laid waste to the house of our hope, and trampled the body of the saints like dung in the streets. What assurance can the churches of Britain have if we cannot defend our own? End quote. You see, during this period, the riches, the treasures of England were housed not in castles, not in vaults, but in the church. They became the target of the Viking raiders. For the next 200 years, the entirety of the Viking age, the church lived in fear of its own destruction. It attempted to cloister itself off from the threatening world around it. And it is actually the only time in history that Christendom stopped expanding. The first paragraph of this passage that we read this morning, I believe, is Christ's warning to us about the particular worldly vision of control. I believe it's the very same vision that Bishop Alquin had when writing this letter. And it's also perhaps the vision that the church has today. Let me explain. Every single form of religion, Christianity included, is predicated on one single fact. The world is a dangerous place. And when we realize how dangerous the world is, we all respond in the same way. We become afraid. And when we are afraid, we seek to control the world around us so that we can feel safe again. And the problem with this cycle is that generally our attempts at control almost always are in direct opposition to someone else. In order for us to have enough food, enough water, enough clothes, shelter, money, etc., we often have to take it from someone. When we seek our own safety through control, we actually become the danger of everyone else. And it just continues the cycle. You will hear this vision of the world all the time, ever so subtly. It's more common than perhaps we realize. If I can just get that job, if I can just earn this degree, if I can just make this much money, if I can find the right person, then I will be happy, then I will be fulfilled, then I will be safe here. Notice that the emphasis on these statements is always on laying up our treasure on earth. If we can just acquire some tangible thing, our time on earth will go easier. Now, religion is a common response to this cycle of danger, fear, and control. What religion seeks to do is bypass the danger by placing supreme authority in God. Because if God is in control, then I'm at safe. But the problem with this approach is that oftentimes we want to maintain control ourselves regardless. And so instead of trusting that God is in control, we seek to manipulate God instead. For what better way to feel safe 
than to control the God who controls the world. Author and theologian Sky Jatani says that this is done in the church in one of four ways. The first is a life under God. It says that in exchange for obedience to God, he will bless you. We offer our faithfulness to the Christian moral structure in return for God's security. Think of the mother who raised her child up in biblical principles in a godly home, and yet he has gone astray. She's distraught because God has not held up his end of the deal. I did my part, God. Why did you not do yours? The second option is a life over God. Instead of trying to manipulate God through obedience, you can cut out God altogether. The Pharisees are a good example of this even within the church. They allowed scripture to take supreme authority over their lives over God. It's why we see Jesus constantly rebuking them. He says in the book of John, you search the scriptures to find salvation, but they point to me, and yet you do not come to me. See, it's very, very possible to live your life according to the Christian doctrines and not know your heavenly Father. The third approach, Jatani says, is the most common. It's a life from God. It's also sometimes referred to as consumer Christianity. It says that God exists to give me what I want. It's the prescription message of the megachurch. Find out what people want and tell them Jesus is how to get it. Now, most of the evangelical church can recognize that this is not a good way to view God. But our response is to go the complete opposite. We say, no, 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 it's not about a life from God, but it's rather a life for God. But Jatani says that this is actually the fourth way we can manipulate him for our own gain. You see, a life for God convinces believers that their existence on this world is measured by what they can do for God's kingdom. Instead of security through obedience or the acquisition of things through reverence, a life for God seeks fulfillment through service. And the sad reality is that all four of these approaches to God will ultimately leave you disappointed with the Christian faith. And Jesus tells us why in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I believe this is Jesus' response to why that first vision of danger, fear, and control doesn't work. The Greek word for money here is mammon. It's a Semitic word that means possessions or more generally things. You could make the connection 
to the treasures of earth. The problem with the four visions I mentioned moments ago is that each one uses God as a means to another end. They're not concerned with God himself, but rather what they can get from him. What Christ is saying here is that if your vision is upon earthly security, earthly fulfillment, earthly happiness, earthly possessions, and the like, you cannot also be devoted to God. Perhaps the scariest verse in the entirety of Scripture is in direct response to this issue. And it happens to be in the Sermon on the Mount, not a paragraphs ahead in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Let's turn there just briefly. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus depicts a scene from the final judgment in which a multitude of people claim that they were faithful to Christ. Men and women who spoke in the name of Christ, who did many works in the name of Christ, proclaiming to him that he's their Lord, and yet Jesus says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, they declared Christ in both word and in deed, but Jesus knew their hearts remained elsewhere. He was not their treasure. What sometimes looks like faith in God is simply a manipulation of God for our own desires, our own security, our own fulfillment, our own happiness. And as I said, the scariest part of that passage is the word many. And so the question that remains is what's the alternative Where should our treasure be? Let's finish the passage starting at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, 
Or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen. In Calcutta, India, it was common practice for Mother Teresa and her fellow sisters to go to the train station every morning and gather the sick and the wounded. One morning, Mother Teresa came upon a particularly weak man. He was severely ill. His body was covered with open wounds. Even maggots had begun to eat his dying flesh. She claimed him for herself. She spent the morning tending to his wounds, keeping him, keeping him as comfortable as she could in the heat of the day. And as she had finished her mending, he looked up to her briefly, said thank you, and then died. That night, Mother Teresa told her fellow sisters, today I had the privilege of caring for the dying Christ. This, of course, was an allusion to Christ saying, whatever you do, to the least of these you do to me. You see, Mother Teresa had a different vision of the world. She was not concerned with her own safety. She was not concerned with her own needs. She sought first Christ and his kingdom, and it gave her a ravishing new vision through Jesus Christ. These last verses and this story should hopefully help us to see the alternative vision. You see, Christ doesn't help us acquire our treasures. He must be our treasure. And when Jesus is your treasure, when all you want is to be with your Christ, you begin to see the world clearly for the first time. Here's the alternative. When we become afraid, instead of resorting to control, we can choose to surrender. We can surrender to Christ. We can say, I am not in control, Jesus, but you are. And when we do that, we realize how possible faith in him really is. We realize that he meets all of our needs Safety, fulfillment, happiness, and otherwise. And when we have faith that Christ is all we want, all we desire, all we ever need, we realize that we are perfectly and supremely safe on this planet. And when that happens, you become the most dangerous person in the world. Because when all you want, when all you desire is to be with your Jesus, with your Christ, you have no need or worry of anything any longer. It doesn't matter if they take away my liberties. It doesn't matter if they slander and curse me for what I believe. It doesn't matter if they take away my food, my water, my shelter, my family, my money. Nail me to a cross, put a bullet in my head, and I will be fine. 
because you can't take away Christ from me. I am always with you. On the night of January 27th, 1956, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was awoken by a phone call. I can't tell you exactly what the voice on the other end of the phone said. It's not appropriate for this context. But the point of the phone call was that if King and his family were not out of Montgomery, Alabama in three days, they would all be dead. Not being able to go back to sleep, he went downstairs made a cup of coffee, sat down at his kitchen table, and began to pray about how he could leave the city in time. In King's own words, he said he was paralyzed by fear. In his fear, though, at that night at his kitchen table, he heard another voice, an inner voice, and it said these words. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you, even to the end of the world. I will never leave you. I will never leave you alone. No, never alone. I promise to never leave you. No, never leave you alone. What King experienced that night was a vision of a life with Christ. A vision of life beyond knowledge, beyond action, beyond earthly things. Here was a man who knew everything you could about faith, yet he did not encounter Christ so instead that at this vi- until this evening. King said that at this very moment, his fear was gone. In his own words, I knew at that moment that I could stand up without fear, that I could face anything. Three days later, while leading a rally for the bus boycott, someone came running in and said that King's house had been firebombed. King and those gathered ran down the street to find his house engulfed in flames. A large mob of black citizens had gathered nearby, armed to the teeth, and prepared to riot because of the attack. King found his wife and his infant daughter. He made sure they were safe. They had gotten out of the house in time. But he knew his work was not done, for if this riot ensued, people would die. And that's when he did something remarkable. He stepped up onto the porch of his own burning house and said this. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them. Let them know that you love them. For what we are doing is right. What we are doing is just, and God is with us. When the crowds heard this, 
They drop their weapons. They join their hands. And they began to sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Historians consider this moment the turning point in the civil rights movement. But you and I should know better. The turning point was not King speaking on his porch, but rather it was three nights earlier at his kitchen table when he encountered Christ so intimately that it changed his vision of the world, a vision of Christ that set him free from fear. See, when you are paralyzed by fear, you cannot love. And today I sadly see a church paralyzed by fear of what it could lose. Imagine a church today that knows Christ as King did. Imagine a church today set free from fear. Imagine a church today that can actually love because it knows finally and ultimately that all it needs is to be with Jesus and that Jesus is with them. Would you pray with me? Christ, when we are hungry, and all we find is you, may we consider it better than food. When we are tired and all we find is you, may we consider it better than rest. When we are struggling and all we find is you, may we consider it better than victory. For if we are with you, all these things mean little to us. Thank you, Jesus.